This all happened in Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptized. The word of the Lord. God, thank you for that reading, Don. Five years, I was the only one to knock down this stand until now. It is, it is wobbly, so it is a bit of a challenge. The kids are invited to go with kids, or Kelly, to a kids' church. This third Sunday of Advent, as I said, is joy and starts to enter the picture. And yet it's a joy that seems to be captive in exile or, or in some lost expectation. For instance, the psalm that Emily read for us starts with this rejoicing in what God has done, that the Lord has done great standings for them, but then they turn towards asking, restore our fortunes. Or the Isaiah reading where this exile that they've gone into um, and are coming out of, they seem to find that the land that they are coming back to is not as glorious as they remember it. And so a messenger is appointed to speak to them how that restoration will come, how the city will be rebuilt, how God's glory will come again into that place. The reading from 1 Thessalonians um, began with rejoice always, which is one of those things that when you're having a rough time and somebody says it to them, you, you, you might want to slap them or something like that. Uh, uh, well, you know what First Thessalonians says, rejoice always. Um, and yet what, what we see in First Thessalonians is this, it's one of the earliest New Testament documents we think we have, and it's, it's obsessed with that urgency that Christ is coming again. Your rejoicing always isn't because of something you can turn on within yourself. It's not you all of a sudden going, you're right, it's not so bad. Let's sing another round of Christmas hymns and I'll be happy. It's in fact a realization that in this coming one, that joy is what we have. It's joy that is being brought to us. It is joy in light of the fact that Christ is going to return. It's joy that comes from prayer and the Holy Spirit and gives thanks in all circumstances. Outside of context, which we never do as Christians, everything we do well within its context is a joke. Um, uh, within context, it speaks of a joy that's because of the coming one. It doesn't deny the realities of a world bent against God and in suffering, but it speaks of one that is going to come again. It's, it's almost as if for, for those in Thessalonica, which is the name of the city, um, uh, for them, uh, they have reason not to rejoice. And yet they are being called into rejoicing. They're not full of Christmas ham, in presence, basking in the glow of a fireplace with their kids playing peacefully on the floor, uh, tumbling with the dog and the other half child that you're supposed to have, two and a half. Um, they're not doing that. The evidence uh, to the contrary is that they should not be in joy. And yet what Paul is calling them into rejoicing always, to being a people of joy. And so we have in those three readings a, a similar theme, a similar stream of sort of thought. But, but the John reading um, 
about the, the baptizer, John, sort of comes out of left field. Um, it has this notion of that there is darkness and that there is one who comes from the light. It says, John testified concerning him, um, sorry, uh, six and eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John, he came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. This one, it doesn't fit with the other readings as well, but I think it calls us into the reason for the joy. First, this short passage just that I read there tells us a couple things. One is that there is darkness because light is needed. There is darkness in the world. One of the things I often feel about scripture and theology and the ways in which we are empowered by Christians to look at the world is it speaks truthfully as it is. is there's this notion in which if, you, if you're following sort of a, a script— um, you question the script when it fails. And for many Christians, um, the script seems to fail in personal suffering and this type of thing, but actually we find that we have books like Job. Um, we have Psalms. We have areas that speak to that. And oftentimes, uh, preachers, they're the guilty ones, um, and other people, uh, we, we don't center on those texts. But, but what Scripture tells us is often the truth about the world. And so if we think about the script that we have for Christmas together um, culturally. It's just this sort of what I was talking about, that, that fireplace, the gifts given, a happy family, um, good food, and yet we know that that an end will fail. I mean, there are other scripts. Um, we talk about uh, the military-industrial complex. There's what I call the medical-industrial complex, which we're suffering from right now, which is that any sickness you have will have some sort of cure, and if it doesn't, the next cure, which seems to be slipping into this country as it has in Western Europe, is uh, um, euthanasia. That we have these sort of scripts that like empower our lives, and when they fail, what we have a chance to do is to reassess whether we're living truthfully. And I think what scripture, even just this short person, there was a man sent from God whose name is Jazz. he came as a witness testifying concerning the light. It speaks that there is darkness in the world. Kelly gets on my case uh, about this. We haven't had open prayer as much as usual, but every time the holidays come, I always want to pray for those whom this time is not good news. Um, this is a time of overconsumption, of credit card debt, of anger, but also severe loneliness and anxiety and depression and angst, and that's not even counting the coronavirus. Um, that's not even counting government shutdowns. That's not even counting uh, your businesses closing, schools being shut down, and such. That's just normal times. And yet, I think for the church to be a place to say that while we center towards this joy, there's a way in which our cultural script is failing us. That if we do, as Kim and I were talking, you know, uh, there's a temptation for the church to do four Christmas Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve and then moving on, but not sitting in the fact that the hope that we're awaiting in Jesus Christ comes out of exile. It comes out of darkness. It comes out of a world of failed scripts and failed hopes and failed chances to make everything right. Which brings us to more from John. At first, he came as a witness to testify to the light. Now, uh, I can't see what slides are in order. Sometimes the phone does that. That's the cell. Uh, that's the Greek word for witness, uh, martinia. Um, 
Can anybody guess what English word we get from that? Martyr. Um, you've been around me long enough, though. That's cheating. Um, uh, John came, in some sense, this witness is almost like a martyr to the light. But some of the good news here is, and, and this is I first, is, is that you are not the light. And that is good news. Because if we think we're the ones that can turn on the light and the darkness that surrounds us, I think you'll end up in darkness or some version of narcissism. Um, You'll end up a denier of reality as it exists. But we can be testifiers. We can be witnesses. We can be martyrs unto the light that is coming into the world. But that you are not the light of the holiday season might actually give you some room to breathe as well. It's my job to make sure the script that we have comes out perfectly as a father, as a mother, as as a parent, um, or as a grandma who's trying to give great gifts, or an aunt and uncle who are supposed to bring the joy of the holidays, and yet they're struggling with uh, lack of something. Um, They're struggling with uh, addiction abuse that they know, if I don't come back this year with that, they'll think I'm less fun. How am I supposed to live into that world? You are not the light. And yet what we can do as Christians is point to the light. This is also, I think, on a side note, good news for Defiance Church. We are not the light. There's a temptation for churches to to double down on busyness around the holidays, but almost all the time, in the attempts to say, we will, will put the hinge of the world back to right, and our witness is somehow bound up in whether we do that or not. But the first step of our witness is admitting that we are the ones who do not do that. And at best, we point in that direction. I do have, uh, nope, thought it was an image next. Nope, thought it was an image next. That's on witness. We'll get to that. Here we go. Um, I do have an image of, um, this is uh, an altarpiece. I can't pronounce, Carla, do you recognize it? Isenheim, is that the name of it? Eisenheim. Eisenheim. Uh, What's the tower in the two towers, David, that I'm thinking of? Uh, Isendor. Isendor. It is not Isendor. They did not have this. It is what Carla said. yeah, the hobbits are coming to Isendor. Yes, that is not where this painting is, um, as far as I know. Um, this uh, it, it famously hung over Carl Barth's um, office in his desk, and he always thought that the theologian's job was to be John's finger. That we're not Jesus, and we're not um, anybody else in this picture, except for the finger pointing to the one who is the one who puts it all to right to the one who is the light, is that we sort of are the one who sort of gestures towards what God has done in the world. And to think we're more than that is to begin to move from off stage right to the center of the stage, to say that we are it, and you can trust it because of us. It's just the the gesture upward towards who God is, is perhaps what we can succeed at as churches. We can be witnesses unto the light. Now, that is to give John a little bit of a slight, for one instance, is that he truly is a martyr unto this story. He is one who goes to this end. 
It's every year. We do two John the Baptist Sundays in Advent every year, um, and it's always important to remember that while John is not a big deal to us, some of what we know about the first century world in which the Gospels are coming alive is there are people still gathered around John's um, we'll just call it a cult in the traditional sense of the word. There are people who have been Jews, who have followed John, and have not transferred themselves over to who Jesus was. John was a big deal. Um, and so for the author of the Gospel of John to remind us that he is not the light, but he is a witness to it, is both to give him his proper due, but also to put him in his proper perspective too, that he is not the light. Now, the next thing that John has coming for him is John knows who he isn't very well. First off, the narrator of John, who's also named John, um, says that he is not the light. But secondarily, when people come to them and he says, he did not fail to confess freely that I am not the Messiah. There's this way in which knowing who you aren't is a step towards freedom. Um, there's, a, there's a rap lyric I like that says, everything I'm not made me everything I am, which I think captures some of what John knows. All of which I'm not can make who I am as a witness to what is. Knowing he is not the Messiah. Then they ask him, who are you, Elijah? And he says, I am not Elijah. John knows in two instances what he is not. And in his confessing what he is not, he becomes, I think, a better witness to what the light is. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John pulls back to what he is. I am not the thing, though. I am a voice calling in the wilderness, making straight the paths for the Lord. John doesn't think he's more than one who is calling in the wilderness, making straight the paths for the Lord. As we sit in that tension I've been trying to talk about for Advent, in, in the world that is to come, in the world um, in which Christ has come into, there's a way in which that might be a strong hope for us. To be ones crying in the wilderness, attempting to make straight the paths for the return of the Lord. This is what Thessalonians is talking about in some way, too. Is that you, uh, in all the epistle readings, it's been... Um, convicting for me, all the epistle readings we've had, that later New Testament readings for Advent so far, have been included something about your state of, of sanctity, your state of perfection, your state of holiness. And I think, can I go back to just being a witness? Um, and yet, there is something tied up in our witness in what we don't do, in our holiness. Um, in the past week, I was reading both, I'm trying to think of what order to do this in, both uh, stories of people who grow, uh, grew up in evangelical households in the 90s um, with virginity ring conferences. I'm, uh, some of you may not be aware of this. Uh, heightened sexuality sort of um, calls and this, that, and the other. And that led to lots of frustration, lots of emptiness, lots of struggles. Um, there's a famous I Kiss Dating Goodbye book that the guy reputated later in life and uh, is going through a divorce now himself, which is not 
justification for anything, but just there was a heightened sense of all this at the time. And so what the modern sort of younger um, post-evangelicals, if you want to call them, have started to say, perhaps that was all wrong, um, in not just form, but also in content. Um, I think that the form of which it was heightened during that time um, might have missed the mark per se, but, but there's a reassessing of the content. And then I read another article from a woman this week who had grown up in abusive households, who had grown up in abusive structures, was a victim of sexual abuse herself. And she said when she went to a church and the pastor met with her with the door open, when the men in the church didn't try to take her off to the side by herself, when they had this sense of sexual wholeness around that time, it was a safe place for her to be in a world coming out of abuse. And that's where our shortened frame can mess things up. The people who played these things upon me did it wrong in form, perhaps. But the content of whether it be our sexual wholeness or our moral um, uh, not lying, uh, not cheating, what we've been doing in the Sermon on the Mount, not looking at people uh, as objects of wrath or consuming them, isn't always wrong. And so it is in this Thessalonians reading, and to be witnesses, to sort of maintain that. Yes, weird things have happened in the church, and they will continue to happen in the church. But the form is not the same as the content. And the content of this for that woman was good news. To have thrown out the content would have made it another place where people just saw her as an object to be consumed. She said, and this is the funniest part about it, is one of the greatest comforts for her was that so-called Billy Graham rule. Whereas that people wouldn't meet alone with, or man wouldn't meet alone with her without uh, other people there, was for her a comfort it's easy to make fun of these things, and maybe people here don't do that. Um, but for some people, these are lifeblood that says this is a different spot in the world. In our world, with the Me Too movement and all the abuse that's sort of coming to light, you would think that these sort of guardrails would be worth something as well. Side note on Thessalonians. On the back of the bulletin, this quote, to be a witness does not consist engaging in propaganda nor even stirring people up, but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would make, not make sense if God did not exist. Read it again, because I think about this quote constantly. To be a witness does not consist in engaging in propaganda or even in stirring people up but in being a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. This, I think, calls us into knowing what we're not and also this way of being a witness in the world. John is not one who thinks his job is to stir up propaganda. He is not one who sort of is seeking the crowd for the sake of the crowd. In another gospel, um, people come out to him, and his words of greeting are, your brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? If you give $10 to my ministry, you will receive gold toilets. Um, no, uh, John is one, it was like a, 
That was way off in left field. Yeah. It was a, a Joyce Meyer joke in there combined with something else and something else. And when you get 10 together, the only person who gets it is me. Um, the, what John does not promise is any sort of sign or greatness or prosperity. What he promises to them is that they should bear fruits worthy of repentance in that gospel. That's what you get. Fruits worthy of repentance so that you might not be tossed into the coming fire is John's warning. John is not the preacher that's going to engage large crowds based off of his charisma, nor off of his promises, nor off of his challenges. And what he does is he becomes, in this way, I think why we still have two Sundays for John the Baptist in Lent as we prepare ourselves for this coming Messiah, is because he becomes this enigma. Uh, eats locusts and honey, dresses in camel's hair. Um, John becomes this way in which he doesn't make sense to us. And so he lives his life in such a way that one's life would not make sense if this coming one did not come. If there was no Jesus, it would be like, remember John? That guy was crazy. I went out there once just to make sure he was crazy. Sure, I got in the water, but yeah, I'm not going to. That was just a, you know, there would be a huge difference without the Messiah who comes after him. John lives in such a way that what he's saying with his words, if they don't come about, he becomes a liar, and his life does not make sense if God does not exist. And so as I've thought about this quote a lot, or maybe way too much in my life, I wonder what are the ways in which we can live in a way that our life does not make sense if God does not exist? Is it our ways of forgiveness? Is it our ways of giving? Is it our ways of gesturing as witnesses to the light? But there are ways, I think, it's easy to forget this, I think, but in the modern world, in which we can become witnesses to this reality. We can rejoice always. We can pray continually. We can give thanks in all circumstances. If you've known that person who does that authentically, it is both exciting and judgment at the same time. Um, you're like, well, I guess we could do that. And you're right. And I am shallow and wrong. And I will join you in giving thanks because you are, have read this situation correctly. For this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ, to not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them and hold them to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. We live in a world with multiple forms of evil that tempt us and surround us. There's, well, I'll skip that. There's just a, when you watch, um, if you, you, you might grow in discomfort of what um, uh, Philip Reith called the, the death works, um, in, in that what we watch and what we consume often is gesturing towards the desacralizing of certain things. Um, this came to, to true reality for me watching a show recently where um, towards the end uh, for the final season, the woman dressed up as the Pope and blessed a gay marriage and this, that, and the other. And it was a comedy show and it was all fun and this and that and the other. But I was like, it's meant to desacralize all that might speak of sacredness. And to be honest, as a young Christian who has a Netflix account and a Disney Plus account, 
Um, there are so many things that people are saying, have you watched X? And it's just meant to pull you away from that which is good and true and beautiful. I don't have a solution for that. I watched the whole show. Um, but First Thessalonians has a solution, which is to say, uh, to reject every kind of evil, even the light kinds, perhaps. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. We are not the light. Sanctifying ourselves is not the way. But we may invite the God of peace to sanctify us through and through. Your whole spirit, your soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who calls us is faithful, and he will do it. Let us pray. That we await your return. We await the time in which all those powers and principalities and those forces of destruction, those evils of every kind, might be extinguished by you, the God of peace, of light, and love. May we, in small ways, become witnesses to that reality with our neighbors, with our friends, with our coworkers, with those whom we go to school with. Not heaping up propaganda or a show, but knowing who we're not. We are not Elijah. We are not the light. We are but a voice in the wilderness, attempting to make straight paths for your returns. During this time of Advent, may you situate us well as people who at the feast of your incarnation on Christmas Eve become people who see the light of the world bursting into a world that still contains darkness. Through the words of Isaiah, may we become oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Be with us now and be near to us. Strengthen us with your spirit in this time and allow us to be joyful in the world. Amen.